Interesting uh, week, uh, Kirk, uh, you and my wife both sent me today an uh, article by uh, Seymour Hirsch. Um, oh, she did too, well. Yeah, if it uh, wasn't Seymour Hirsch, I would have discounted it. But it is Seymour Hirsch, who mm-hmm. is arguably the foremost investigative journalist of our time. Uh, Seymour Hirsch is the fellow that, that really uh, brought an end to the Vietnam War. I congratulate him on that. Uh, he um, was the one who investigated the Malay massacre during the uh, Nixon administration that showed that uh, we were completely out of control, that we were manufacturing enemies, uh, not killing them. Um, and you have to value his work on the Malay massacre. He was the one who uh, destroyed the artificial credibility that was afforded to George W. Bush and his administration, including Condoleezza Rice, when um, he exposed uh, Abu Ghraib, where not only was America torturing prisoners, but when it was discovered that we were torturing prisoners, Condoleezza Rice and the George Bush administration had the those who were following their orders go to prison while well, they accepted no uh, responsibility and actually later on bragged about the uh, benefit of torturing people. Seymour Hirsch uh, is the uh, the one who um, demonstrated that um, Pakistan was complicit in the, uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, he uh, is um, second to none when it comes to investigative journalism. He published, I think it was yesterday, one of the most stunning articles I've ever read. And you know, I, I write every day. I, I write 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, I'm pretty adept at evaluating who can write well, who presents facts well, who is uh, writing.
writes poorly, who lacks evidence and reason. Seymour Hersh is brilliant. The case that he makes for America engaging in an act of war against Russia is um, overwhelming. It is a mountain of evidence that, uh, that he marshals from an inside source that names names, talks about the dates, the places, the people involved, and what they said. Of course, the Biden administration, who made the decision that uh, Seymour Hersh uh, exposed, says it's all fantasy, it's just not true. And yet he has cited both uh, Milken, Secretary of, uh, of um, Foreign Affairs, our uh, Secretary of State, and mm-hmm. uh, Biden himself declaring that if uh, Russia invades uh, Ukraine one way or another, the Nord pipeline will be over and done with. He did. We bombed it. Now, normally I would say the evidence indicates, based upon a very um, comprehensive article on who did what to whom and how it was brought apart, but... uh, I've been doing this now for 22 years. I'm pretty good at, uh, at noticing when people are lying. And in this case, he's not. America knowingly, deliberately, under the orders of, of the President of the United States, Biden, committed an act of war against Russia. We bombed their leading source of income, the pipeline that they had built under the Baltic Sea to provide an inexpensive and efficient means of, of fueling Germany and Europe with natural gas. And we blew it up. It's, a, it's a astonishing. I mean, uh, listen. I've been talking about this, not from the very beginning, because it was in May in 2008, that George Bush, someone I knew personally, that I disrespected enormously, um, all who would listen, that we were declaring war on Russia when he announced that he intended to make both Ukraine, um, which was formerly part of the part of Russia uh, and other nations that were um, on the border of Russia part of NATO was May 2008 the declaration of war and then thereafter um, two of the Republican Party's greatest military hacks and propagandists, one whom I knew personally, again, John McCain, and another um, being uh, Lindsey Graham, are on video in the Ukraine telling the Ukrainians that their war will be our war and that we will arm them and we will stand behind them and we will fight with them until they achieve victory over Russia. 
This was sometime right after America overthrew by riot the popularly elected democratic government of Ukraine so that we could make them part of NATO. Been around 2013, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the United States declared war on Russia through a proxy in the Ukraine. And if you're a patriot and think that's a great idea, shame on you, because I have said, and I will continue to say, it's going to end in a nuclear war. Thousands have died, maybe hundreds of thousands, but soon millions. This is what we deliberately and knowingly brought upon ourselves, and we have blamed it on Putin, who did what he had to do. It was uh, an amazing read to discover what uh, Seymour Hirsch found. But we taunted the Russians and said we were going to do it. We taunted the Germans and said we were going to do it. And right before what has turned out to be one of the coldest winters on record, we cut off the supply of natural gas to Europe by bombing a commercial pipeline. So what are the Russians going to do in retaliation? Are they going to destroy uh, America's cables uh, over the uh, channel to Europe? Are they going to take out America's satellites? Are they going to bomb America's naval shipyards? our Air Force bases, the White House for making that decision? What are they going to do? We declared war on Russia, and we bombed their primary source of revenue. So why wouldn't Russia be justified in uh, bombing the refineries in Houston? Think about it. What would stop them from Mm -hmm. doing so? particularly as we give tanks and long-range missiles and all manner of weaponry to the Ukraine by the hundreds of billions of dollars to kill Russians, all because we were too stupid to recognize that this was the Cuban Missile Crisis all over again, and this time we were the protagonist. This is unbelievably stupid. And now to learn that America engaged its military to bomb an essential Russian target. Ah, it's yep. stunning. You, you read the article? You sent me the article? What's your impression, uh, Kirk? Uh, I was stunned. I mean, when I said the only thing that I could think of um, is it can't happen quite right away. I mean, I'm surprised that it didn't already launch. I mean, that's yeah. an act of war. Yes, yeah, it's, an act it's of war. just terrible. And uh, um, uh, we're, we're confronted. We're confronted by China. Uh, this is not stable rattling. This is really serious stuff. This is uh, this war in Europe is, as we've uh, all come to conclude recently, this is um, 
this will lead up to a nuclear war. Uh, Yahweh, the, the only thing I think, honest to God, the only thing I think saving America right now is 40% of the Jews, Yehudim, are in this country. And this is not yeah. the way it plays out yet. Uh, and we have a mission uh, to at least reach them with the truth. What they do with it is what they do with it. Uh, but um, this, uh, I think that's the only thing keeping it, keeping this at bay. I, I don't know what else to say about it. it was just, I was horrified by this article, actually. Yeah, it's embarrassing mm-hmm. to be an American. Uh, and, you know, it's <laughs> the, the saddest thing about the whole thing is that 99% of Americans, maybe 99.9, have been beguiled, naively, oh, willingly perhaps, yeah. into believing that America is right that uh, it was yep. right to sanction Russia, it was right to taunt Russia uh, and, uh, and claim that the Ukraine should be part of NATO, that it's right to send hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons to Russia, uh, to, uh, to Ukraine, to, to fight Ukraine. NATO, to fight uh, Russia. Yeah. Uh, it, it's astonishing that we are that easily beguiled, that... We can create a boogeyman with the best of them. And it's how we engaged in World War I. It's how the Spanish-American uh, War uh, began. It's how the Vietnam War began. We created artificial boogeymen. We lied as a nation to justify war. And we're doing it again. But we're doing it now against the country with the largest stash of nuclear weapons. And there is no, uh, no prevailing. If uh, Russia will either conquer the Ukraine uh, against U.S. weapons and European weapons and won't stop there and will use conventional warfare to, warfare to invade Poland and, and other nations and Europe will be engaged in war. And that's the best we could possibly hope for. Because if that clown Zelensky gets his way and uh, he uh, continues to con Western countries, and they are provided with more weaponry, and Russia were to lose, that is the worst possible scenario. Not because we don't give a damn about corner. Russia. We don't. Don't care about Putin. No. Don't care about Russia. Care less about the Ukraine, based upon their history and anti-Semitism, their graft, but as... Uh, Putin's lead ally said this week, the world has never experienced what happens when a a nuclear-armed country is faced with its own survival. And what it likely means is that this war will go nuclear. It's inevitable. It is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And uh, we brought it upon ourselves there was an article, uh, Kirk, that I sent you that was uh, pretty astonishing. It um, was of Zelensky, and it, uh, you know, the, the uh, leftist media would uh, have you believe that it was debunked, uh, that uh, Zelensky said that there needed to be a preemptive strike back in September uh, or October yeah, of last year, that there needed to be a preemptive mm-hmm. strike against Russia's nuclear forces. Uh, there's only one way you can have a preemptive strike against Russia's nuclear forces, and that would be a preemptive nuclear strike 
against Russia. Right. So he was calling deliberately. He's on video. You can, you can watch it. You can listen to it. He's on video calling for Europe to take out Russia's nuclear capability with a strike, a preemptive strike, as he calls it. That would mean that he is calling on Europe and the United States to launch a nuclear war against Russia. That's how insane this man is. Yeah. And yet we as a nation are so grotesquely immoral, we don't have anybody with the backbone to call it out and condemn it. The best that the media could do is to try to debunk the story by saying, well, he didn't actually call for nuclear war. What he actually called was a preemptive strike against Russia's ability to launch a nuclear war. And that would be what do you what? Hell you think that is? <laughs> Are you that stupid? You don't know what that means? And they said, and, and, the, and, and the conspirators are, are saying that it was recent, and it really wasn't recent. It was at the Lowy conference in September of 2022. <laughs> yeah, it was. So there we are, five months ago, and no one's talking about it. <sighs> the mainstream media. You know, Seymour Hersh is a brilliant mind. He clearly figured out that the uh, that what should have been obvious to all of us based upon the rhetoric uh, out of the uh, Biden administration uh, that mm-hmm. we took out the uh, the Russian uh, Nord one and two pipelines and that we did it deliberately and then we blamed Russia for it just like we have engaged in this war against oh. Russia and blamed Russia for oh. it. Yeah, but uh, why is it that a man who is this bright? is missing the story of the century that we started this damn war, that we wanted this damn war, that we'll do anything to continue this damn war. The pieces are all there. The evidence is all there. Why can't he do that? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure he doesn't know either. A couple of other items in the uh, the news. Uh, last week, here's this face of this uh, clueless progressive liberal saying, you know, I feel embarrassed to drive my Tesla now because Elon Musk is <laughs> not a progressive. Look what he's doing with Twitter. Good grief. Elon Musk is a liberal. He voted for Biden. He's just not clueless like you. <laughs> So you want to condemn your pretense of being environmentally honorable when, in fact, the electric cars are far more disastrous to our economy than our uh, gasoline-powered cars because you will only associate with, with that which mirrors your progressive and liberal view. That's a spectacular. But nonetheless, that's the way the world is. There's an article out of, uh, out of Israel this week. It says less than one-third of Jewish Israelis trust the rabbinate. <laughs> Two-thirds, almost 70% of Israeli Jews know that the least trustworthy 
people in Israel are the rabbis. The only people that support them, of course, are the Haredim who control them. Pretty uh, damning, is it not? There's another article that I thought was just fascinating. Um, when you uh, translate the, uh, the Torah, uh, particularly the creation account, and very early on, you, uh, Yahweh says that, uh, that the nursery for the stars that are emerging is water vapor. And you're going, yeah, you know, okay, you know, there's some water vapor in the nebula, sure enough. But um, how, why would he say that water vapor was so prevalent? You know, the Webb telescope now, uh, as it peers uh, deeper into space and has clearer views of, uh, of galaxies and nebula, mm-hmm. has shown that water vapor is everywhere. And it is particularly prevalent where stars are being formed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was right. Yeah. Another story, uh, this, this one from India. Uh, yeah, the Hindu religion is really screwed up. A uh, young Indian girl was, uh, after being raped by her uncle, was sold to a religious facility in India where she became a sex slave uh, to one of their goddesses. She was, I think, eight years old. No, 10. I'm sorry. She was 10 when, well, she was eight when she was raped, 10 when uh, she became a uh, a temple prostitute. Now, you would have thought that as the world progressed a little bit, that somewhere among the the idiots that are religious, they would learn, eh, temple prostitution, probably a bad idea. Raping our children and selling them as sex slaves Probably not the most wonderful thing we could do. And yet it's exceedingly prevalent in India among the Hindus. We don't talk a lot about Hinduism on this program because, frankly, the, uh, the Hindus are so lost in space and they're just not all that um, damning of Israel. And... Yahweh's focus is on those who attack Israel. So this is just a contingent that is immoral and grotesque out there that um, we should report on from time to time because they they do some very respectful things. There was a bombing this week, killed um, 150, 200 people. and it was in a mosque. It was uh, perpetrated in a country that's 99% Muslim, perpetrated by Muslims against Muslims. Yes, it was in a mosque. Um, it was a police mosque, of all things, in Pakistan. So when the United States, uh, I guess it was 150 wounded, uh, 28 killed, so I'm sorry, my numbers were a little off. Uh, when Muslims are left alone. They kill Muslims. When someone tries to help them, they kill those who try to help them. 
So what's the best answer? If you try to help them, they kill you. If you withdraw from them, they kill one another. Isolate. Leave them alone. I think you just leave them alone. Now, an exception to that is uh, what happened um, here recently in northern Syria and the southern part of Turkey. And while it's clear that Erdogan has made a mess by turning Turkey back into an Islamic uh, nation as opposed to an independent secular nation. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully he's booted out of office because of his grotesque handling of uh, the earthquakes. But an earthquake in, in southern Turkey, there was a 7.8 earthquake followed by a 7.5 and then a, a whole swarm of, of fives and sixes. And it's true that there really are very few, if any, places that can withstand a 7.8 earthquake or a 7.5. If it happened in California, uh, sorry, Kirk, but it would be rubble. No. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. This, is, this is just the nature of sure. it. Sure. Uh, but there are some things that I noticed in, uh, in Turkey that I, I want to share. One of them is prior to the earthquake, to live in Turkey would be hellish. Uh, at least it would be my view of hell. If you look at these, the cities that were devastated, turned to rubble, what you see is that every building is the same. They're all the same height. They're all the same width. They're all the same length. They're all the same color. They all have the same roofs. They all have the same apartments. They're set side by side, right next to another, and it is all the same. And they're hideously ugly. One architect, one builder for all. And whoever it is that is the architect and the builder obviously doesn't care about life or ethics because there's very little rebar in these buildings because an enormous amount of cinder block in these buildings that the floors just pancaked upon one another. And when you see the, the floors pancaked, you look at the edge, guess what's missing? Rebar. Rebar. Concrete without rebar is a rock. It is stunning that people lived in those conditions. It's like a prison camp. It's astonishing that people built buildings without any inspiration. Boy, what Islam does to a culture. Another thing that's interesting about watching uh, India, or excuse me, watching uh, Turkey in the aftermath, is where in the hell Mm -hmm. is the Turkish government? You see people with their bare hands trying to move blocks of concrete, throwing blocks in the street, which does more harm than good. But you don't see the Turkish military. You see the Israeli military, they're there. You see the Israelis building field hospitals. Yeah, the IDF is there in space, doing wonderful work. And there are, are people from all around the world who came to help the Turks except the Turkish government. The other thing that's interesting is that, yeah, there are a few trackos here and there, 
but there's no dump trucks. What good is the track hoe if you don't have a dump truck to move the material out of the way? Mm-hmm. If you just simply put it in the street, you've accomplished nothing. Now you've made access to people impossible. The other thing that's just amazing is you don't see caravans of food. You don't see caravans of, of blankets and tents and the things that people need. It's freezing there. People are completely unprepared to take care of their own. It is exceedingly sad. I don't know what the death toll is now, but um, well over 25,000 and growing. And, and the agony of knowing that people have been trapped under this uh, rubble and, and uh, have uh, died because the quality of the workmanship was so poor and because the government had no ability to marshal the, the kind of equipment needed to save these people. It's a, it's a desperate and horrific, horrific situation. Uh, looking at other items in the news, the Ukraine uh, this week uh, is pleading for two things uh, beyond, of course, a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia. That ought to work really well. Uh, but uh, they say they need, in addition to tanks, which they've received a bunch of, and now they want fighter aircraft, uh, that they need $17 billion in additional financing to, uh, to repair the damage that has been done by using them as a proxy for war. $17 billion. In addition to the $15 billion they need to resolve the graft problem that has existed for uh, years uh, within the Ukraine, making it the uh, least moral nation in Europe. One other article that I want to share on the news, then we'll get... Um, to uh, uh, back to Hosha. The Roman Catholic Church, ever the moral beacon uh, of the world, signed an accord with the communist government of China this week. And the deal they made with China is that China will accept their presence within the communist country so long as the communist government gets determined, gets to determine who is ordained as a priest. There were some 250 priests that the communist government ordained that the Catholic Church said, wait a minute, they're just communists. That the church agreed could be priests so long as the communist government gave them a license to operate. Boy, that's, uh, that's taking the high <laughs> ground, isn't it? That's going to work out well. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably a, uh, enough uh, news for one program. Uh, this was the passage in HOSHA 5.1 that we were uh, still talking about when the time ran out uh, last week. Uh, it is uh, HOSHA, the fifth chapter uh, begins. That's Hosea. Uh, hear this, those who are priests and have become religious leaders. Pay attention and be attentive to what you're hearing, family of Israel. Household of the king and extended family of political leaders, open your ears to hear as tools to evaluate and consider. For this just assessment applies to you. So religious leaders, common people, political leaders, all of this applies to you. 
religious leaders, common people, political leaders. You have become a snare. You're your own worst enemy. A dangerous means to control others. A mitzvah. You even question the means to be observant. In addition to casting a net spread out upon Mount Tabor, broken, actually upon Tabor, not Mount Tabor, on Tabor, which means a broken and confused world. Tabel is world in Hebrew. Some blanket indictment of all three factions of uh, Israeli society. Rather than pontificate their agenda, Yahweh wanted those guiding his people to perceive, ponder, and consider, even to prove the validity and efficacy of his Torah instructions. They would do well to weigh and test the Torah and prophets when shepherding God's flock. The misfot, which is the just means that uh, Yahweh provided to evaluate his method of exonerating his people, would serve as his justifications for condemning the whole lot of them, the religious, the political, and those they sought to control. And control really is the operative word. That's the basis of religion, that the Herodim do it as well as anyone. They control people's access to information. We don't have to worry about the Herodim. They're not listening to the show. They can't. There's no (laughs) access to the Internet. Their phones won't even make a phone call to anybody that's not on the Herodim-approved list. It's the most control the religious have ever imposed on other religious people. They tell them how to dress, where to live, what to eat, what they can do, what they can't do, what they have to read, what they can't read, and control their access to information outside the community. They're stupefied. And they're so stupid, they'll actually fight to maintain their subjugation. Ultra-Orthodox Judaism is the worst thing that ever happened to Israel. And in Israel, make no mistake, it's not like the uh, the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, uh, Reform Judaism, which is Judaism light, and Conservative Judaism, which is Judaism medium, um, are much more prevalent than ultra-Orthodox Herodim Judaism. But in Israel, ah, because in Israel a deal was made because they don't have a constitution to give the rabbis control over society. They control who gets to emigrate. They get to control who is married. They get to control who is divorced. They get to control what you can eat. They have enormous say. And under a Netanyahu government, They are bribed to get what they want for that government to function. And so in Israel, there are essentially no Reformed Jews or conservatives, Jews. 
even standard Orthodox Jews there. Collectively, less than 5% of the population. While the ultra-Orthodox, having nothing to do but bore themselves with their Talmud and uh, make babies because they don't work, are uh, growing rapidly. And now the Haredim want to control the agenda of Israel even further. Uh, they certainly are not willing to listen to Yahweh's declaration and Shamuel, where he said that you ought not be political because this is all the negatives of politics. Uh, but nonetheless, they, uh, their current agenda is to criminalize any practice of Judaism that doesn't comply with their own and to not allow anyone to immigrate into Israel who doesn't acquiesce to their control. But control is the nature of politics and religion. Those who uh, deploy these approaches to governments and uh, their method is to mislead and ensnare their prey. Those who succumb do so out of ignorance. And once trapped, the masses discover that there is no escape. Boy, if you're a heredity and you try to get out of the order, grotesque what they will do to you. You know, other than to die at the hands of their tormentors, there really is no escape. As the 20th century demonstrated with the onslaught of polygious doctrines such as Nazism, imperialism, and communism, the lives of over 100 million people were sacrificed mm -hmm. to the schemes of men. We're not yeah. becoming more civilized. We're becoming less civilized. And it is only going to get worse as we move deeper into this century and enter the time of Jacob's troubles. The deadliest nets will be cast upon Tabor, a broken and confused world. We've already shared the world is heading directly to nuclear war. And I don't even think nuclear war, uh, Kirk and, uh, and Dee, is going to be mm -hmm. the worst of it. Um, I think we're uh, headed to absolute uh, and total uh, economic collapse. Mm -hmm. A lot uh, of people Saudi are Arabia start. even, uh, even um, made overtures this week that says that we're beginning to, uh, to consider taking other currencies other than the U.S. dollars for um, gas and, uh, and oil. When BRIC wow. prevails and replacing the uh, petrodollar, the U.S. economy is over. Yeah. The whole charade collapses. Mm -hmm simple concept and yet so devastating um, uh, our deficit spending now you know we began this program <clears throat> what some 20 years ago we we're talking about the US deficit being out of control at at uh, uh, what was at the time a <laughs> yeah. few billion dollars mm -hmm. blown that out of the water uh, and now it's what 30 to 35 trillion, trillion? yeah, yeah. So conservative yeah it was at one time salvageable. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. It's not salvageable anymore. It's, uh, it's all an illusion. And you combine the, the dilemma of war with uh, economic collapse and uh, that with starvation um, and famine yeah. and the growing menace of pestilence of uh, pandemic disease. It's um, yeah. going to be very bad out there.
Mitzvah, gruesome tale, begins in um, Shaphat Judges. It, uh, the story is told in 1910, and it runs through the end of the book. The Israelites were gathered together, including chiefs and clerics, to consider, take counsel, and speak up about the wickedness that had taken place. It's a, it's a gruesome story. It, um, in fact, uh, Presbyterians uh, seeking ordination uh, are suing now the Presbyterian Church because uh, they were asked, the seminary students, to get their, uh, their uh, uh, Doctor of Divinity were, uh, and to be frocked in the uh, Presbyterian Church, were told to write an essay on how they would create a sermon over the lessons that could be learned by this particular story. And they said it was traumatizing to them. A woman had been raped. She had been murdered by a mob of Benjamites. As a result, they took an oath concerning those who did not respond to Yahweh at Mitzvah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. One tribe is cut off from Israel today. By contrast, Tabor is cloaked in victory. This is where the great judge and prophet Deborah lured uh, Sisera to the uh, mountain to uh, end his oppression of God's people. Mitzvot and Tabar are tragedy and hope. They are both used as bait to trap and control the religious and the political. Well, that's another exceedingly graphic tale as how the mm-hmm. women prevailed against uh, Sisera and what Sisera and his men were doing, which they were involved in human trafficking of the of, uh, virginal Israeli women as sex slaves. The... Uh, I don't want our listeners to sue me, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll move on. But when, when God says, you know, we've got a problem, folks, he's not kidding. We have a problem. Israel, you know, the uh, um, and translating Ezekiel, uh, uh, the inspiration of Ezekiel is uh, uh, the serpent, it's Satan. And he is uh, trying, you know, after you know, 30 some odd chapters of being devoted to uh, 25 different ways to kill Jews, he realizes, wait a minute, this, this is not going to work out for me. I really have to lure Jews into my company because if Jews are not willing to worship me as God and perceive that I am Yahweh, uh, then my whole gig is up. Uh, I've, uh, I've lost. So he tries to lure them uh, to his side. And one of the things he promises them is that, that he will return them to the glory days. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> when was Israel glorious? Please, tell me. Yeah. I mean, they certainly weren't glorious during the time of uh, pre-Israel with uh, Abraham. He was a scallywag. Mm-hmm. They certainly weren't glorious during the time of Jacob, who became Israel, <clears throat> due to his issues. They certainly weren't glorious as uh, they were fighting amongst each other scared to death. They certainly weren't glorious during the Exodus. Oh, it was the worst. They were despicable. 
they weren't glorious under Shaul, King Shaul. Even under Dode, during that brief moment of a unified Israel, uh, civil war and infighting and uh, nations uh, attacking them. Dode occasionally even tripping on his own tongue. Wasn't glorious. And then after that, as they became divided with Israel violently opposing Yahudah, we find Israel, what, 722 BCE? Mm-hmm. Bludgeoned into submission and hauled off into historical obscurity by the Assyrians. Nothing glorious yeah. there. And after that, there is no Israel, only Yahudah. And, boy, there wasn't much glory there. I mean, they, they had to endure uh, the Assyrians again, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and three attacks and invasions by the Romans, and, and then the Byzantine Christians, and, and then the Muslims, and then the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hasn't been very glorious. The rebellious insurgents, who are openly defiant, are intensely and deeply murderous, even genocidal. So I will judge and punish all of them, inflicting the appropriate penalty upon each of them, which is to incarcerate the totality of them. Hosea 5.2. God's not pleased with the condition of Israel. Rebellious, openly defiant, murderous, genocidal. What's he talking about there? Well, the fact is that Israel, for its entire history, was rebellious against Yahweh, openly defiant against Yahweh. They never embraced Yahweh, ever. And most of Israel's problems with their neighbors was that there was always a group within Israel that thought that they were hot stuff and that they their way was the right way and that they could um, use terror tactics to overcome the larger empires. And so what they did with uh, Egypt, when Egypt was an overlord and and trying to uh, stop Egypt from engaging in a battle uh, against Assyria, caused them to be bludgeoned by Egypt and made them susceptible to Assyria. And then when they couldn't make up their mind if they wanted to bribe Babylon or Egypt to protect them, the Babylonians <laughs> came and whacked them. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at what happened with the uh, the Greeks. Mm, there, yeah. there were that's the whole Maccabee uh, thing where they became guerrilla fighters and terrorists. Um, and look what happened with the Romans. Now, listen, the Romans were bad. No question about it. They were horrendous, no matter what country they occupied. But there was no country that the Roman legions sought to wipe out three times. 
and a lot of it was brought on by a genocidal rage of Israelis. I'm not trying to justify the Romans and the Greeks. They were despicable. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were despicable. The Muslims, they were despicable. But Israel has been her own worst enemy for a long time. Now, the proponents of religion who are overtly, uh, overtly hostile to Yahweh and his people, who deliberately pull the unsuspecting away from the proper path, are genocidal from Yahweh's perspective. You know, religion is mass suicide. And for that, they have earned their ticket to hell. God is going to judge and punish them all, inflicting the appropriate penalty on each insurgent, which will be the, the very least to incarcerate them in Sheol, to be just recompenses required, to be fair um, to those they deliberately killed. Now, we don't know what percentage of people um, will end up in Sheol versus just their souls dissipated into nothingness. Personally, I don't actually mm-hmm. think Sheol is a, uh, um, a punishment. That's kind of an odd thing to say. Uh, but um, clearly, the dissipation of one soul. You don't know Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't know you. You were misled but didn't uh, actively mislead others. And at the end of your mortal existence, your soul essentially dissipates. That clearly is no penalty. Not a reward, not a penalty. Um, you're, the only thing of your life is you were at least given the opportunity to live it and make your choices. You just didn't make good ones. But for those who um, were belligerent, who deliberately led people astray, who attacked and harassed Jews, well, something else has to happen. And and I think, based upon what we read, that their primary punishment is going to take place uh, as they are judged, and they receive what they doled out. And so I think a lot of recompense we're going to witness um, as a means to leave those they victimized whole. Mm-hmm. And I think the punishment is, is at that time and that the black hole that they will spend their eternity in is, is designed for a simple thing, uh, quarantine. Yes. Eternal, eternal separation. Uh, there's no God there, there to torture anybody. In fact, we've actually found now there's enough black holes in the universe that everyone could have their own little private black hole. <laughs> yeah, there's a really? lot. Yeah. yeah, and wow. a black hole is essentially okay. a singularity. It is exactly the way Yahweh describes uh, uh, Sheol. It is a place in, where the, it has a complete absence of light, where nothing escapes, and time is eternal. Yeah, the only dimension that, that exists in a black hole is time, and it's eternal. Once you even approach the event threshold of a black hole, time simply stops. And in the center of a black hole, time is. Wow. Uh, I was watching a number of uh, programs here recently put on uh, uh, by uh, um, a number of the, like the discovery kind of science channels and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And sure. they're, they're actually now talking about um, the nature of space-time and how the interesting thing about uh, uh, the light of a star is that 
when you're in the proximity of energy like that, the time simply is. And they, they actually, we'll, we'll talk exactly about this like we talk about the Hebrew language, like we talk about light, like we talk about uh, where Yah was taking us. That in the fourth dimension where, where we are stuck in the ordinary flow of time, it only moves in one direction at one pace for us. Uh, as a four-dimensional construct rather than three-dimensional construct, time will be as navigable as, uh, as is the three dimensions that we understand that we can maneuver in. Uh, and they talk about how this time will exist. But one of the things that's really interesting about time maneuverability, as you go back in time, you're not able to change things. You're able to observe them because they have already happened. So because they have already happened, you cannot change them. And Mm -hmm. that is an astonishingly important fact. To know that you don't get a redo by going back in time because the catastrophic effects of that. It's already happened. The fact that it's already happened is a surety. So if you're going back in time, you can witness it. You just can't change it. That makes sense. So it's a fascinating study as they they talk about the very things that we've been talking about, how these things are dimensional and uh, how time and and space – um, can be understood in this way. That's pretty cool. The, yeah, yeah. The, the text of Hosha continues. I myself am aware of Ephraim, which means ashes, and Yisrael, those who contend and struggle with God, is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, worthless specks of carbon, is an unfaithful, immoral, and disingenuous religious whore. And Israel is defiled. Their culture, their traditions, social nature, their religious practices, their political dealings do not allow a return to their God. Indeed, it is certain that an illegitimate and duplicitous spirit is within them. Therefore, they do not know or understand Yahweh. That is true today. It would be hard to find even a handful among the 7 million Jews living in Israel who know Yahweh's name, who understand his nature, who appreciate what he's offering, and have any understanding of what he is expecting in return. Those who know and understand Yahweh are almost universally in this position because they have read Yada Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was um, translating Ezekiel, which is Satan's autobiography, it's his playbook all laid out for us to consider. It is interesting that that um, I just finished the uh, Valley of the Dry Bones, which is what a hoot. Uh, and uh, the resurrection of the Valley uh, of the Valley of the Dry Bones is for a singular purpose. Satan must claim every Israelite who's ever lived to prevail. For a draw, he just has to keep anybody from attending 
Yom Kippurim in year 6,000 Yah, here in 2033. But to win, he needs every Israelite. So his, the Valley of the Dry Bones is supposedly every Israelite who has ever lived, all being assembled together, all resurrected, and, um, and yet between the tens of millions of them, there's not a single soul. And there's only one spirit. Satan. Yikes. It's a very frightening thing. Uh, yeah, and so we're, we're looking at this and saying, all right, Satan is, is really explicit. If you don't see it in the English translations because they, uh, they do not translate Ruach as spirit. Uh, but that's what Ruach means. And he has insisted, he has repeated 20 times that I'm giving them my spirit. I'm claiming them as my own. I will be their God. They will acknowledge me. He, of course, then, once he said that, he just leaves them to rot and to erode right back in the dirt because he doesn't give a crap about their lives. He just needs their profession to acknowledge that he is God. But in doing that, one of the things that was so interesting, so you'd have to have, because he claims it's every Israelite, so you've got tens of millions of Israelites, allegedly, at least in his dream, that, uh, that are resurrected. And to give them all a spirit, and at one point he talks about spirits being called from the four um, winds or the four spirits, it's unclear as he's saying that he is comprised of four spirits, is if he can command spirits from all over the universe, or if he is a singular spirit. And normally you discount anything Satan says, and say, oh, well, Satan, you know, it's probably lying to us. But you no, know, this idea that, uh, that Satan uh, uh, drug a third of the heavenly host with him is a revelation concept. It's not said anyplace else. So we really have to discard it. We, we don't know how many of the Malak may, uh, may be uh, unified with uh, Satan, if any. But what we do know is that Satan claims that he can possess every Yisraelite who's ever lived. He can resurrect them, he's claiming. He can give them temporary life. He can... Um, cause them to, uh, to bear his spirit, which is to damn them to Sheol. So when God says that uh, indeed it is certain that an illegitimate and duplicitous spirit is within them, king of Hasatan. Now, he is not saying spirits plural. It was spirit singular, a duplicitous spirit singular. And so there appears to be a, a way, based upon what Satan is claiming himself and what we read here, that Hasatan can leverage his spirit and imbue many people with it. Oh, two of his victims we know for certain were Paul and Mohammed. And my guess is that uh, you would find that the same thing was true with the Kiba and Mohammedes and Adolf Hitler Hadrian. and Hadrian and... Yeah. Titus and a, uh, a few other special individuals. Mm -hmm. 
But we are fighting a spiritual battle. The thing that was so humorous about Ezekiel is that this is Satan's game plan. He has never been held accountable for it. Not a single person in 2,500 years has held him accountable for it. This is Satan saying, this is what I'm going to achieve. (laughs) He's been done in by a dumb goy. I'll tell you what, he did not see that one coming. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he could read the same stuff. He obviously is kind of slow, huh? Yeah, I know. I told you the not so he, dumb boy. <laughs> he uh, he uh, he can read and has read uh, Yermaya, which speaks of what we do, and and yeah. Yashaya, which is prolific about what we're uh, doing. But uh, he he didn't seem to be able to put together those uh, those pieces. So, in this particular statement, it ends. Therefore, they do not know Lo Yada Yawa. And we've looked at Yada from every side now. As the song said, from up and down and still somehow, it's illusions of Yada the Israelite recall. They don't know Yada at all. There are many revealing verbs in the Hebrew lexicon, but when it comes to Yahweh, Yada is the gold standard, the best of all. Yada means to know in a familial sense. It means to be aware of, to recognize, to acknowledge. When you put those concepts in association with Yahweh's name, persona and his nature and his purpose, it doesn't get better than Yada, Yahweh. And that's what this text just said. Yahweh was aware that Yisrael those who were contending with God had become Ephraim worthless they were specks of carbon their religion had defiled them making them unacceptable Judaism had taken its toll Selene now hopelessly polluted and dishonorable and deplorable people and if you're listening you're near a religious Jew obviously you're not Herodim because you wouldn't be able to listen to this if you were uh, you're saying, well, man, it's not fair. Judaism wasn't created until you know, the first century uh, CE. You can't pin this on us. This was written in the 8th century BCE. Oh, yeah? What do you claim is the basis of your Talmud? Do you not claim that the basis of your Talmud is the oral Torah, which was, would have been uh, delineated in... 1447 BCE? No, you don't get off. Hebrew is a timeless language, yeah, or timeful language, I should say. It's, it's a true past, present, and future. When God is condemning yeah. political, religious, and common Israelites, it was true then, it is true now. Nothing's changed. Yeah, I understand that the Herodim have a um, a different wrinkle. I mean, their religion was was created uh, by Baal Shem Tov in the beginning of the 18th century CE. It's, uh, it's not quite as uh, as new as Mormonism or quite as new as Scientology, but it's uh, equally whacked and fairly recent. Yes. 
So Yahweh is aware that all of this would happen, that religion has defiled his people, making them unacceptable. He knows that Judaism has done this. And as a consequence of Malalalhem, their cultural traditions, societal customs, religious practices, and political dealings, there would be no right of return, no homecoming, no means to restoration or reconciliation. It's another thing that Satan gets uh, wrong. He, um, he realizes that uh, the end date for him, game over, is reconciliations in year 6,000, yeah, October 2nd, sunset, in Jerusalem, 622 p.m. in 2033. It's game over. The moment uh, that Dode returns, uh, the adversary is cut down and, and dispatched. The moment Yahweh reconciles his relationship with Yisrael, it's over for him. Whether there are seven people there or 7,000. And so he will do everything he can to try to preclude that from happening. And it's so interesting in, um, in Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel doesn't have the uh, same Moed Mikre that are in the Torah. Oh, he, yeah. he has yeah. Passover, all right, because, well, with the Passover, <laughs> yeah. what do you get? You know, you, uh, you get eternal life. But yeah. he, uh, he, he skips a few. Yeah. yeah, he skips a few out there. Yeah. Uh, he has uh, no Shabuah, for example. There's no enlightening, enriching, or empowering of God's children. They're going to be Makes stupid forever. There is no Teruah, yeah. which is the... The very definition of what we're doing now. Oh, the horn, yeah. Yes. No Teruah. So he has eliminated Shabuah, where we're enlightened, enriched, and empowered. And he has eliminated Teruah, which is what we're doing today. But guess what else Ezekiel has seen as no consequence? Kaporim. The um, very mm-hmm. day that is the last card yeah. for him, that it is over for him, that Dode returns with Yahweh. No, 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 no. We cannot have Kaporim. There can be no reconciliation or I'm done. Ezekiel, no, there is. His Mikre has no reconciliation. There's another one that's missing too, which is the eighth day of Sukkah. Why? Because there can be no eternity of everlasting life of camping out uh, with with God in in Eden. Oh, but uh, he has handy replacements. There is an annual celebration of Shabbat because Shabbat, from his point of view, would be the day that God and man do nothing. And then, as an interesting thing, there is uh, the celebration of the new year. Of course. So what is he doing with that? Well, you know, it's very interesting that I was doing Babylonian the, uh, the timelines uh, and uh, Daniel, as, as Dode was talking to uh, to uh, Daniel, trying to beat some sense into the idiot. Um, he gave a timeline. And if you look at that timeline, it is apparent that, uh, that Satan's appearance in Jerusalem for his crowning achievement, to stand atop Moriah and to be worshipped and acknowledged as God, happens to be 14 days before the arrival of the two witnesses. The first of Abib, Nisan, and what we will observe is 2030. That's when he arrives. And guess what? His holiday of holidays 
is New Year's Day, the very day he, instead of Yahweh, arrives in Jerusalem. He beats it by some 40 months, trying to preclude his return on Kippurim. A really interesting story, as Satan would have mm-hmm. us uh, believe things will play out. Well, folks, when God is precluded from speaking to a people, they cannot hear him. They cannot know him. They cannot exist anywhere around him. That's why the ten tribes have considered lost. They, lo, Nathan, negated the gift of life in their relationship with Yahweh. To be invited by God to proceed along the path to know him, to be invited by Yahweh into the covenant, which is clearly how it happens. Yahweh didn't tell us the story of these interesting individuals that he worked with along the way uh, and give the details of how they began for nothing. There is a common trait that all walked away from religion and politics before Yahweh engaged with them. All of them. And the covenant says that you must do this. That's the prerequisite. Yahweh won't even reach out to someone, won't invite them into his company to know him until you've done these things. So if you are religious or you're political, whether Yahudem or Goyim, you put up a giant wall that says, uh, God's not welcome here. And he is not going to break it down. So until you walk on the other side and put that wall between you and religion, comes to know God. That's one of the things we're talking about again. And I will be bringing up Ezekiel mm-hmm. a lot because it is such a, an eye-opener in terms of what Satan intends. And you know, one of the uh, the things that uh, you learn is is just how insistent he is on uh, convincing every uh, Jew to know him. And this very thing that we're doing, which is exposing Yahweh to people, is going to thwart him. But understand that that the serpent. The Loitan is the uh, the title Yahweh loves to uh, give him. That's from Yashaya, Loitan. Um, that this serpent um, needs a clean sweep. To win, he needs every Israelite. And so he's playing a very different game than Yahweh is. His game is numbers. I've got to have them all. You know, was not playing that same game. His game is quality. He was happy with Adam in the garden. He was happy with his relationship with Dode. He was delighted with his relationship with Moshe. He loved Sarah, tolerated Abraham. <laughs> he managed to get along with, uh, with Jacob, which took some doing. Israel was a uh, a tiny group of people initially. Yahweh's not looking for numbers. If there are seven people at Kippurim, wonderful, if those are wonderful people. 
playing a very different game. We win with seven people there. Satan loses with seven. Because he's playing a game of numbers and Yahweh's playing a game of quality. I love it. The verb shub was used in this uh, text. It means to return and be restored. It was presented and the call infinitive, affirming that the obstacles in their path were daunting and they were enduring. Over the next 27 centuries, Israelites would identify with their customs, their traditions, and religion, but not their God. That's particularly true today. About 40% of uh, Israelites living in Israel are progressives. Um, They're incapable of thinking. They're out there now marching by the hundreds of thousands in Tel Aviv because they think that by reforming the judiciary in Israel and having the jurors appointed by the people that are actually elected, that uh, they will be destroying democracy. That democracy is somehow based on having a judiciary that is completely um, outside of the reign of the people's management. But they claim, but they're so stupid, they will march by the hundreds of thousands in Tel Aviv to say that they won't tolerate the death of democracy that would occur by having political judicial reform and making the judiciary um, under the control of the elected officials. Now, I'm certainly not a fan of the Netanyahu government, and I'm not endorsing what he's doing, but I can tell you the arguments that are being made by the United States and uh, France and, and others against Israel, that they were foregoing democracy if they make the judiciary accountable to elected officials is stupid. I mention this because that is the nature of progressives. They just flat out can't think. 40% of Israelis are outside of the bounds of people that we have any chance of reaching for Yahweh. They will not be among the seven or 7,000. And then on the other side, the Herodim, the fundamentalist Jews, representing 40% of Israel today and growing, or soon to be 40%, I think they're a little shy of that at this moment, but they're growing very rapidly to that point. They're not reachable either. No amount of evidence or reason is ever going to cause them to embrace Yahweh. So now you're dealing with only 20% of Jews in America and Israel and and throughout uh, Europe. 20%. And of that 20%, they all have to give up on the customs and conspiracies and politics and and any form of their Mm -hmm. religion and be willing to open their mind to Yahweh and open these books to read about what Yahweh has said that he is offering and expecting in return. And what percentage of that? Now, that's very early. I mean, the first person to 
joined the uh, the Covenant family was uh, Joe Page, my good friend for so many so many years. That um, was so essential to getting this these books initially uh, online. He's Jewish. Uh, we have, I'm sure, Dr. Jeff listening to us in uh, in Florida mm-hmm. uh, tonight. Dr. Jeff was uh, um, among the first handful of people that read Yada Yawa and became a covenant member. He's Jewish. Uh, my wife is a covenant member. She's Jewish. We have many members of the covenant who have done the DNA test and found out they are, in fact, ethnically Jewish. We've already won. Satan is lost. <laughs> and there will be thousands. Well, it is interesting that um, most Jews would identify with their customs, traditions, and religions, but not their God. And that's clearly what's occurred, and it is heartbreaking. It isn't the worst of it. It is one thing to reject Yahweh and another altogether to accept Hasatan, the adversary. And that's precisely what God is revealing through his prophet. He said, it is certain that an illegitimate, duplicitous spirit, a disloyal and immoral spirit, an unreliable and whorish, do not know or understand and unfamiliar with Yahweh. It's so bad The Jewish religious leaders now for 2,500 years have studied and written upon and incorporated what is found in Ezekiel, extolled it. And yet the book dehumanizes Jews, demonizes Jews, seeks to obliterate Jews, and is so obviously satanic. And yet they, they write glowingly of it. It's, uh, and it, it's not, I mean, I feel a sense of satisfaction for being the first person in 2,500 years to point this out and to prove it. Sure. But I really, but I really shouldn't. I mean, yes, it's, it's technical writing. Yes, it requires a person to know Yahweh and to be able to differentiate between Yahweh and the adversary. But it should have been done a million times. It wasn't all that difficult. Heck, a dumb goy can do it. Anybody ought to be able to do it. (laughs) Fortunately, they were left with a glimmer of hope. The negation of Yada, fortunately, was scribed in the perfect conjugation. In that prior statement that we have read, that they do not know Yahweh, That means they did not know Yahweh then. It doesn't mean they would never know Yahweh. Mm -hmm. If it was to be that they would never know Yahweh, it would have to be written in the imperfect. Thankfully, it was not. Perhaps by juxtaposing Yada and Yahweh, God is suggesting that Yada Yahweh may contribute to the awakening of the remnant such that they dispensed with their customs, traditions, and religions in addition to that illegitimate spirit, and give Yahweh a chance. Between now and then, we can be assured that 
it is religion which has separated Yisrael from Yahudah. Nothing has been more harmful to Jews than Judaism. Rather than bringing people and God together, religious is the religion is the biggest impediment to God the world has ever known. Religion just isn't a trap, not a means to control the unsuspecting. It precludes believers from knowing God. I found it fascinating and and Ezekiel, uh, as uh, you know, the 38th chapter is this fanciful tale of the uh, Valley of the Dry Bones, which I, I am assured that when uh, those listening to this program have a chance to read it, you'll you'll really find it fascinating. It is, is so grossly untrue and yet so unbelievably revealing. But the two chapters that precede it were really a surprise to me. I had thought that Satan would adore Islam, because Allah is modeled exactly after him, spends all of his time in hell, hates Jews, despises women, uh, endorses lies. It's perfect for Satan. Put a shrine right there on the top of the Temple Mount as a trophy. It couldn't be better. It's written at the same amateurish level as we read in Ezekiel, as we read in the Quran. I would have thought. He would have loved it. And certainly for a long time, I'm sure he's been tickled pink with it. But what Ezekiel says is that Satan is going to turn on Islam. He's going to eliminate it. And that's not all. In the next chapter, he says, he's going to dispense with Christianity. And you might say, why? Paul was demon-possessed. The Christian New Testament is like Ezekiel. It has all the same themes. Why would God give up on these two religions that have served him so well? These two religions did everything that Satan needed to obfuscate People knowing Yahweh by name, by reputation. They negated his Torah. They replaced it with satanic gibberish. You would have thought that would have been his crowning achievement. And yet in Ezekiel, he says he's going to eliminate both. I'd like to wager a guess as to why. Doesn't get him Jews. Oh, yeah. The answer is really pretty simple. The thing that, that opened my eyes to what Islam was all about is when I learned that Satan, the adversary, must destroy the title of being the adversary if he is going to be worshipped as if he were God. And so the single most important thing is that Satan has to destroy that myth that he is the adversary to be perceived as God and to be perceived as the God of religion, which he is. Well, he used those religions to do that. And then he used Judaism to eliminate the name of God so that it wasn't spoken by his, uh, the people that he was soliciting. 
But Satan knows that Allah is not God. He knows that Jesus is not God. He doesn't want to be worshipped. And when it, in Yahshua 14, that it talks about what his goals are, he doesn't say, I want to be worshipped under the name of a false god, Allah. I want to be worshipped under the name of a false god, Jesus. No, he wants to be above the Most High, Yahweh. Well, Islam and Christianity would have him be worshipped as Jesus and Allah. That's not what he's trying to achieve. He wants to be worshipped as if he were Yahweh. Can't achieve that with Islam. Can't achieve that with Christianity. And so he has to destroy them. Makes sense. Stick way. Accepted by Jews as Yahweh. And then by going against them, he is presenting himself as their savior so that they come to know and accept that he is Yahweh. Fascinating. It is. So, yada is such an interesting uh, word here, and it's it's used ubiquitously through uh, Ezekiel as well. And it means far more than just to know and to understand, although when associated with Yahweh, to know him and understand what he is offering and expecting uh, from us in return is plenty sufficient. Yada is the purpose of our quest. Every possible rendering is worthy of our consideration. So, according to the New American Standard Hebrew Dictionary, Yada is translated the following ways and times. To acknowledge six. To be acquainted with six. To be aware of six. To choose two. To comprehend one. To be concerned with three times. To consider and discern, six times. To discover, three. To experience, five. To be familiar and intimate as a friend, four. To find, six. To have knowledge of, 13. To have relations with, 10. To be informed about, five. To investigate, two. To know and to be known, 700 times to be certain eight times to learn about eight times to make someone or something known 40 times to notice observe six to perceive and realize 10 to recognize and regard four to teach instruct and declare 17 to understand 12 yada is used nearly 700 times as a verb in the Torah, Nabi, Wamizmor. Impressive number, mm-hmm. at least until we recognize yeah. that Yahweh's name is spelled out, well, 7,000 times. <laughs> Pretty pretty too. So it all comes down to, who do you know? What do you understand? And how are you going to acknowledge and respond to it? We'll uh, engage in one more statement from uh, Hosha, and then we'll uh, conclude our program because we're 
have just 30 seconds more of broadcast and uh, we'll still have more time uh, of recording. But this is now uh, Hosha of 5-5. Moreover, the prideful arrogance of Yisrael testifies against his presence. Therefore, Yisrael, which means those who contend and struggle with God, and Ephraim, worthless specks of carbon, will falter, stumble and fall, and they will be overthrown in their perverse corruptions and libelous errors. Yahuda, beloved of Yah, will also waver and succumb along with them. Well, you know, when it comes to um, Yahweh, pride and arrogance only works in one very, very narrow way. And it is appropriate, actually, in one way. And that is we should be proud of, of being the one in a million who come to know and understand Yahweh. That is a worthy achievement. We should be pleased that we're doing his work, sharing his word, reaching out to his people, calling Yisrael and Yahud home. We ought to be prideful that um, having a sense of esteem over the realization that for the first time in a very long time, probably thousands of years, that someone is providing an accurate and, and more comprehensive translation of Yahweh's word and isn't afraid to say it. Uh, you look on the shelf at, at yadayah.com and uh, it, it stretches from end to end across the, uh, the home page with you know, nearly 30 volumes. We've done a lot. We've done a lot. And we should be proud of what we've accomplished because we've done the right thing for the right reason. And yet, if their pride is in thinking that you're smarter than God, that you can outmaneuver God, that you are a God, uh, then uh, that's going to get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah, you got some problems. Yeah. 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 Problems. And that's kind of the, the problem that Israel had. So you can be proud of your relationship with Yahweh. You can be proud that Yahweh is your father. You can be proud that you know and use his name proud of his name, but uh, don't be prideful in uh, testifying against him, which is what this does. Yeah. I like to think of it as confidence and, and security, you know, mm-hmm. self-esteem in what we're doing because we trust Yahweh. Mm-hmm. But I've got to tell you, if you're not confident in what you're doing, you, you really ought not be doing this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, you're saying that rabbinical Judaism is the single greatest obstacle in the long history of Jews, you better know what you're talking about. You better be right. right. When you say that Ezekiel uh, is uh, Satan's autobiography, his playbook for all to read, when the three Abrahamic religions all, all cherish his words as if he were a prophet, you better be right. You better have confidence in what you're doing. 
you're going to do a program like this and do it extemporaneously, you better mm-hmm. understand who you're speaking for, why what you're, you're doing about. it, yeah. and what you're talking about. You better be right. You know, it's it's really important that you understand what Yada Yawa actually means. It's not just the title of, of this program and of these books that we have uh, written and what we have done on Yahweh's behalf for his people these past 22 years, it's a sentence. Right. It's a declarative statement. The single most That'll important thing in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. It is a curiosity here, and I, I don't really suspect I know the answer to this one, but um, Ephraim was the uh, son of, of Joseph along with uh, Messiah, and uh, the two yeah. uh, became part of the 12 tribes because uh, Joseph actually is um, eliminated from amongst the names of the 12 tribes, and his two sons that, uh, become double what he was because he got a double portion when uh, Reuben uh, walked uh, the narrow and short plank off the deep end of the pool after uh, getting uh, caught uh, uh, futzing around with one of uh, Bilya, one of uh, his uh, uh, father's concubines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ephraim is, uh, has become in many ways a synonym for the breakaway of Yisrael. You know, Yisrael can mean one individual and Jacob. Jacob is Israel. It can mean uh, many individuals, and it, it describes the descendants of Jacob. So those who would be ethnically related to uh, to Jacob, all of Israel would be all of his descendants. Israel uh, is also descriptive of the northern kingdom when they separated from Yehudah. Uh, shortly after Solomon's death. And when it's when Yisrael is used to describe the northern kingdom, it's all often mirrored with the synonym of Ephraim. Um, and in this, there seems to be a distinction between Ephraim and uh, Israel. When you know, in this breakaway period, you'd think they'd be reasonably synonymous because what God is talking about here is really there are two entities. The Ephraim Israel is an entity, and Yahudah is an entity. And that's interesting, of course, because that leaves one tribe out. Mm-hmm. Benjamin. And yeah. Benjamin may be left out because, well, Benjamin was uh, uh, the tribe of, of Shaul, King Saul, that was so de- devastating to the relationship between Yahweh and his people. And uh, Benjamin was the, uh, the tribe that uh, was responsible for the, the rape of that woman that turned mm-hmm. all Israel against them. And Benjamin mm-hmm. is Mama the called. tribe from mm-hmm. which uh, the wannabe apostle. Shaul Paul, the founder of the most popular religion in human history, emerged. Interesting 
Benjamites along the way. Okay. But it, it appears that Benjamin has essentially been overshadowed by Yahuda because of, uh, of Dot. But go ahead, Kirk. No, I was, just, I was going to share my uh, Benjamin story. I'll, I'll show you how, how your brain thinks and how smart I thought I was once. I, uh, I got on the show and I said, you know, I finally figured out why, why Benjamin is in the same location as the southern kingdom and it's not in the northern kingdom. Because uh, he, I say it must be something to do with uh, why he allowed, maybe he's a thorn in the side to, you, to the Yehudim. Um, and I thought, boy, that's rather, you know, okay, I'm clearly thinking, at least trying to think. And just like uh, Satan in the Garden of Eden. And then you immediately turned around and said, Kirk, <laughs> who is he coming back to save? Yeah. Uh, Yehuda, <laughs> Israel, where's Benjamin? And coming back to save him. That doesn't mean somebody, a Benjamite descendant could not do the same thing that we do as Goy uh, and, and be part of the family. He's not coming back for that tribe. He absolutely detests that tribe. Yeah, he does. It's the only way you can read Yeah, he is the, he, you know, he is the, uh, the wolf that rips yeah, apart. Yeah, uh, from the start. The, uh, the people is his, uh, is the forecasted blessing. Uh, if you uh, will about him. And then Paul, of course, became the wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, but um, you look also look at the location of uh, Benjamin. Um, mm-hmm. They are the, uh, <laughs> the beginning of, of what uh, you find after you leave the northern frontier of Yahuda. You get to Benjamin and then to all of, uh, of Ephraim and Yisrael. So that, that's where they sit in terms of their land. So, yeah, it's an interesting story. But I, I, I am curious, and I would love to hear uh, 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 the contribution of our family as to how Ephraim can both be synonymous with the um, northern kingdom Israel, uh, Israel divided and against Yahuda and against Yahweh, and Ephraim somehow slightly uh, distinct from Israel. I mean, they're, they are condemned under the same breath here. So there's obviously mm-hmm. not much separation, but, uh, um, you know, he says that, therefore, uh, Yisrael and Ephraim will falter, stumble, and fall. They'll be overthrown. They have exactly the same fate. Uh, they're both... Uh, in the situation because of their perverse corruptions and their uh, uh, hideous errors as they have led people away from Yah. So they're being cast together, but yet still listed as if there was some distinction uh, between them. And, you know, maybe the, the the distinction is that that while Israel does represent the northern kingdom and it represents either 10 or 11 of the 12 tribes and, and everybody other than Yehuda, uh Ephraim is, ex- is exclusive to uh, that reality. Where Yisrael is not exclusive to that casting because Yisrael is inclusive in its origins, inclusive of Yahuda. Exclusive when they became part of the northern kingdom 
and uh, rebelled. But they were they are were born inclusive, and reconciliations will return with them being inclusive of Israel. He says, "I'm going to reconcile my relationship with." Yisrael and Yahudah, that relationship will be reconciled. And then the next time he speaks to them, he only mentions Yisrael because Yisrael is inclusive at that point yeah. of Yahudah. Understood. So that's yeah. possible. The other thing that's interesting is that Ephraim, um, when uh, Shaul, King Shaul, the rebel uh, against Yah, was killed, the last tribe to accept Dod as king of united Israel was Ephraim. When the when I, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, declared their independence uh, not long after Solomon's death, the first king of the northern kingdom was from the tribe Ephraim. of yep, Ephraim. Ephraim. Is it because they were kings in Egypt? And is it is it a little lingering thing that they just don't want? Well, you know, to if be you seen? here, yeah, I was talking about hubris. The Torah mm-hmm. presents Ephraim as arrogant, as uh, yeah. fixated on self, of uh, jealous of the positions of others. Uh, Ephraim mm-hmm. is presented just as Yahweh was presenting the Northern Kingdom here, self-serving. Uh, jealous, conniving. And is that not the same attitude that we find in the serpent and Hasatan? Jealous? Oh, yeah. Conniving, sure. egotistical, Absolutely. manipulative? The whole, the whole thing, yeah. So Absolutely. the Torah presents Ephraim exactly as we find the characteristics of the serpent. You know, the rabbis present Ephraim. Oh, sweet and humble and selfless. Yeah, he's their favorite. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. Yeah. There are some insights here. I'm I'm not saying that I have all the answers. I think that sometimes the beauty of a program like this is that you can admit that you don't have all the answers, that you're a fellow student uh, along the way, and you're uh, interested in the input of others, and then you can share what you think might um, be pertinent. And the more you share, the more you say, well, yeah, that does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, Ephraim and, Man- and Manasseh are both Egyptian coming out of the chute, half Egyptian. <laughs> he didn't marry a Yehudim. Yes, so, I know, isn't that interesting? So the long lineage. Yeah, the yeah. Long lineage. yeah they, married, they, they married Egyptians, didn't they? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Joseph, yeah. Joseph. Yep. So, Although it would have been pretty hard to uh to, to, uh, church, yeah. yeah, at this point. Yeah, it's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty uh, pretty hard. But you know, it, it's interesting yeah. too that uh, very early on uh what we would consider to be Israelite or Yaud DNA is of course a mix of uh of nations. Abraham and Sarah were from Ur, mm-hmm. which was Sumer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which was incorporated into Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. yeah, and um, oh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know they they send their uh, their their son uh, off to uh, to to marry somebody who is a, a tribe of people and a family that is really pretty lecherous. Um, so 
mm-hmm. you know, you start off and you have nothing that you would identify uniquely with Israel, and then you go and in the first generation you have that, and the next generation, well, Jacob uh, went off and did the same thing, didn't he? Uh, went mm-hmm. to the same place, uh, same uh, same mm-hmm. people, same place. So you're you're um, you're at a quarter, and you're only two generations in. Uh, so it is uh, it is interesting. So while we will claim that there is a racial ethnic DNA bond, um, it uh, for Yahweh this covenant relationship is a is a whole lot more than one's DNA because it is uh, divided in half and and quarters and eighths uh, right at the beginning under Yahweh's most direct supervision. Mm-hmm. So it is. Uh, it's an extended family that is far more inclusive uh, than I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, rabbinical uh, Jews now who are trying to constrain the right of return to only those who profess Judaism because it's very difficult to say um, this person is, is Jewish because okay, you could have a Jewish mother, but your father be goy and. And your mother might have only been uh, half Jewish because, you know, her father was a, uh, a goy. And, you know, now you're at a, at a quarter and, and soon to be an eighth. So the, the old DNA test is only going to get you so far. And so they've yeah. redefined what it means to be Jewish by, uh, by your adherence to the most fundamentalist form of Judaism, which is one of the great travesties of all time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it's, it's wow. just it is an interesting uh, study. I um, I'm not quite certain how uh, you know Yahweh is going to figure it out, other than um, he obviously uh, created DNA as a three-dimensional language, and he can clearly read it, and will make his determinations that way because the natural descendants of of Jacob, who became Yisrael, are um, are the uh, people with whom he um, he affirmed the covenant and whom he is calling home to uh, to this day. They are his people. And it is our privilege and honor mm-hmm. to be able to call out to them on their behalf and on behalf of our Father, who will enjoy his day of reconciliation with them. Well, Kirk, it was uh, fun. I'm glad you sent me that article. Um, um, well, I'm glad wife, you got uh, to read Yeah, it. my I wife, whom I owe an apology to, because she came in this morning and say a big news story broke, and and she uh, um, talked about it. And I said, oh, we have to discount that because, well, it's it's a hundred percent hearsay. And uh, and when you have what what I explained to her, as I said, when you have evidence where you were the video, and you can Google the video on John McCain and Lindsey Graham promising to support uh, the Ukraine and uh, their war effort uh, eight years before there was a war. Uh, And you can listen to them talk to the Ukrainians and tell them about this proxy war that we intended to fight against Russia through them. If you have evidence that overwhelming that we orchestrated this and people don't give a hoot, yeah, you know, why would crazy. you why would you talk about the hearsay evidence of uh, of the US committing an act of war and blowing up the um 
the pipelines and of natural gas from yeah. Russia into Europe. Uh, I read the article and I said, well, I know why you do it. Because with the foremost mm-hmm. journalists of our day and the details that he musters to condemn the United States in this act are, um, are overwhelming. A compelling. Yeah, yeah. He is a brilliant, logical writer who has uh, earned our respect based upon what he has done previously and the way that he presents this case. That's why you do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I was pleased to be uh, exposed to it uh, doubly um, uh, today. Um, so thank you for doing that. Good deal. All right. Well, we wish you uh, a wonderful Shabbat. We're going to have a, a quiet one uh, here. My, uh, my fur-faced friends, are all three of them, are Shabbating around my feet, all sound asleep. <laughs> I, I, yes, it, it, is a, it is a peaceful and simple life we live here, I will tell you that. <laughs> and it, there's something to be said for a peaceful and simple life. And, uh, we will have, a, uh, have one tomorrow. So thank you all so much. We uh, look forward to celebrating this Shabbat with you. And uh, have a, a wonderful uh, day celebrating your relationship with Yah. May Yah bless you all. Good night. Okay. Shabbat shalom, you know. Shabbat shalom. Bye. Bye-bye.